will tear your soul apart. Hello, listeners. First of all, I want to start this Hellraiser edition of the Horrible Imaginings podcast with a spoiler warning, just because some of the things we are going to discuss in this episode will involve spoilers, but none of the spoilers will involve the upcoming new book from Clive Barker called The Scarlet Gospels. We haven't read that yet, so don't worry, new stuff will not be spoiled, only old stuff. Also, Angela and I decided we wanted to start this episode with a jokey kind of listener discretion advised warning when we were interrupted by something ghost and unexplained, and we think we have a little bit of EVP for you. So all you ghost fans out there, I decided to keep that in the recording to see what you make of it. So, starting off this episode, EVP. Enjoy. Hey, everybody listening, so naughty things warning listener discretion advised discreet listeners advised whoa something's going on in the background mm-hmm. i hear i hear doors slamming and papers shuffling drama mm-hmm. it's not you nothing happened crazy at your house just now nope oh my god that's really creepy You are listening to the official podcast of the Horrible Imaginings Film Festival, where we brought an analysis of stigmatized creative expression in film, art, and literature to understand the misunderstood. Your host is Miguel Rodriguez. Yeah, I'm pretty sure we've got a ghost. Who else is on this line? Anyone? (laughs) I saw one day I was working, I was captioning on air, and of course I am a professional. <laughs> so, you know, Pinhead could be, could have me chained in my seat and I would still keep captioning. And in my mini in your... monitors, I saw something walk behind me. Oh, in the monitor, not in your like peripheral vision or anything? No, not peripheral vision. I have two computer monitors in front of my face at all times and I saw in the reflection because it's midday where you've got that sort of half mirror quality to your computer monitor and I saw something tall and dark walk behind me (laughs) were you alone in the house except for the dogs and you know Mm. and I I I am to mark because you know always have him on an IM. And I was like, it was not one of the dogs. And he was like, was it Tucker on Gus's shoulders? <laughs> Wearing a coat? <laughs> I'm going to get killed. Do you yeah. work from home? Is this at your home? Yes. Mm, that is fairly frightening. Whatever there is, it's had plenty of opportunities to gank me. And it's not taken them. So I feel pretty cool. Yeah, maybe it's just a, a benign presence. It may well be. I don't know. Slender Man. Oh, no. Slender Man does freak me out just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, as long as you don't join the Slender Man cult and do anything distasteful. Oh, we are all business. How do you want to do? I mean, do you want to like talk about 
Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll start us off and get us going. Hello, listeners of the Horrible Imaginings podcast, and thank you for tuning in once again to our discussions. Understanding the misunderstood, destigmatizing the stigmatized, I am here with my hopefully more regular co-host, Angela Englert, and we are here to discuss all things Hellraiser-based and perhaps a little more. All in, uh, well, actually, Angela, I'm going to have you, what made us decide to take on the Hellraiser mythos as a podcast topic? Well, um, we have a really exciting event in the Hellraiser universe coming up this month, May, oh crap, (laughs) what day does it come out? 19th. 19th, okay. (laughs) May 19th. Thank you. Thank you. I was thinking May 16th. No, that's not a Tuesday. Okay. May 19th, Clive Barker is releasing the Scarlet Gospels, which he has been working on approximately forever. And he is sort of spoiling us all by letting us know that in the Scarlet Gospels, he's going to be killing off the hell priest known affectionately to many horror fans as Pinhead. Jesus Christ. Not quite. So we wanted to talk about Hellraiser. We wanted to fondly remember one of our favorite monsters from the 80s and just sort of uh, reflect on the contribution that Clive Barker has made to the genre and also the contribution that Pinhead and the Cenobites have made. In anticipation of the Scarlet Gospels, as you said, I think we'll start it off with what you just mentioned, Clive's announced intention to kill off Pinhead. So the first thing I'm curious about, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are, why he decided to make this a pre-book release reveal rather than have people just come across it, like Dumbledore in the Harry Potter books or something. It is interesting. And, you know, I think that we need to preface this by saying, while we're going to talk about the novella, we're going to talk about the movies, uh, there is a continuity in the comic books that may or may not uh, feed into the Scarlet Gospels and this decision. So I, I know that we wanted to mention that, but we're not going to talk about it a lot because neither of us have actually read those comics, but they do have Clive Barker's blessing as it were. And actually, I want to interject here to put this out there for people um, because we have not read the Hellraiser comics. And I know, shame on us, but uh, since they are considered canon in nerd speak, and uh, we know that the Clive Barker canon characters like Harry Delmour and Pinhead appear in those comics and have some story relevance in those comics. If anybody out there listening wants to give us some feedback or send us some information about uh, what happens in those comics that can maybe correct what we talk about here, then we'd be glad to uh, take that feedback and perhaps make a future podcast episode that focuses more on the comics and perhaps some other horror comic stuff. But we do know that the comics are an important part of the canon, but they will not be part of this discussion simply because... Angela and I have failed to read them. We fail, but we'll make it better, I swear. And we really want to hear what you have to say about them, etc. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Edit that out. Um, I don't right, know. I think I'm keeping it in. <laughs> oh, damn it. <laughs> okay. Clive's intention to kill off Pinhead. Do you think that this is a personal thing for Clive Barker to have this out there right at the beginning. Guess what, everybody? Pinhead is definitely gone by the time this book is over. I think that it must be. Otherwise, 
you know, he wouldn't make it the centerpiece of the novel. And, you know, we know how he feels about the later Hellraiser sequels. <laughs> Do we? We've got Should a beautiful quote. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he disowns them is probably too polite a phrase, <laughs> which is sad and ironic given that the reason that he made the first Hellraiser film was because he felt that his stories were not going to get a fair adaptation unless he made his own film. And so he made Hellraiser. Hellraiser was brilliant and a masterpiece, and I want to marry it. You polygamist. I've, I want to gay marry polygamist, marry Hellraiser, not Hellraiser 2. So Clive had decelerating interest in the Hellraiser franchise past four, you know, absolutely no interest in. He is not involved with them. They really squandered the franchise is probably, again, a charitable way to put it. Miguel and I actually binge-watched the entire Hellraiser franchise, and it was pretty painful. He must be killing off Pinhead because he wants to have the power to kill off Pinhead, because he feels that all the stories that can be told with Pinhead are told and that the story of killing pinhead is a story that needs to be told and you know damn it the hell priest is his creation he's got the right to do it you know i think we're gonna get into some of this stuff as we go into our little hellraiser history lesson but um, i do have to give my my own thinking behind this it seems like over the years with the franchise and what has come to be known of the Hellraiser mythos, Pinhead has always had kind of a uh, disproportionate place in that. When people think of Hellraiser, they pretty much think of, of Pinhead and, and, and maybe the Lament configuration, but and we'll get into that too. But I don't know. I, I don't know if that was really the original intention was to have this one face antagonist for the Hellraiser mythos. If you go back to the Hellbound Heart, I, I think... The ideas were bigger than one monster. And I mm-hmm. think the fact that it has become, hey, here's one monster, it gives this impression that Pinhead is just another boogeyman who you could line up next to Freddy Krueger and Jason Voorhees and all the rest. And it's it should be above that. You know, it's not a slasher movie and it's kind of taken place of, alongside the other 80s boogeymen. And I think that could be a little bit frustrating and unfair. <laughs> I think you're absolutely right, because particularly with the novella, you see that these ideas, they're even bigger than what one might conventionally think of as a horror genre. Clive Barker's always been about pushing boundaries and tearing veils away. That's always been a priority of his work and, you know, his main themes. So much as Pinhead did not have a name, really, still doesn't have a name. That's the degree to which his personality was originally important. Both of the big characters who will be starring in the upcoming Scarlet Gospels, or at least uh, involved in in the Scarlet Gospels, are um, Clive Barker regular characters, the aforementioned Pinhead, and the paranormal investigator Harry Damore. Both go back before the Hellbound Heart, I believe. I I think... uh, you can see, especially Harry Moore from Books of Blood, Volume 6, I think. Yes. I think we need to go back prior to Hellraiser 
to kind of see where the ideas come from and see how it is this really kind of, I'm going to say, cosmic idea instead of, oh, there's the monster. It's something much bigger. Absolutely. To me, what's really unsettling about the basic story, which is also in a way far more intimate than any slasher movie would be, Mm -hmm. um, because it's so much about willingly doing a deal with the devil but it's it's so much more than that because it's not about transgressing mankind's laws or the laws of nature only it it's so much beyond that like you said it's a cosmic thing and a cosmic thing i just referenced the b52s and i really didn't mean to <laughs> one thing that distinguishes Clive's treatment of this from virtually everyone else working in the horror genre is that he welcomes the alien. He's interested in finding out what happens after the horrible transformation. You see this sort of thing in, you know, you can go back to Lovecraft or you can look at Cronenberg, where you have stories that are often told from the point of view of the disease or the mutant. And that's a source of a lot of discomfort and dread. But Clive always was, wants to bring you past that transformation and that's what he does in the hellbound heart and it's what he does in many of the stories in the books of blood it's what he will continue to do with all of his novels even though he does make some changes in the hellbound heart to you know some more horror movie shaped changes translating the hellbound heart into the hellraiser film it's very genre defying I think is my point. It's beyond what most people would lazily interpret as pure horror. It it has bigger ideas. The repulsion that you may feel is just the first stage. You're going to go much, much further than that. Yeah. And, And what is interesting is, is it for the characters who access this world, it, the first stage is actually curiosity or desire. And, mm-hmm. That's something that's important too, or something that's interesting to me, is that it's not. It doesn't start with a sinner being punished for sins. From the Cenobite point of view, it's almost like you asked for this. This is what you wanted, and we're giving it to you. And you're going to be exalted through this. Exactly. It's not a punishment. No, it's not. It's it's a seeking. You know, I think this goes back before Love, Lovecraft actually, and goes more toward the Romantic era of the search for the sublime. You know, yes, which it doesn't have to be happy. <laughs> it's it's just a an all knowing, a complete knowledge of both the physical and the mental together. And at that point, you can't really separate things like repulsion and attraction, or separate things like terror and love or separate you know pain or pleasure this that seems to be at the center of the ideas in the hellbound heart yes and while our petitioner in both the hellbound heart and in hellraiser frank Mm -hmm. is certainly a bad man and his appetites specifically sexual appetites have brought him to um, this threshold with the Cenobites, you never get a sense of there being judgment. No. You asked for this. Here we are. (laughs) This is what we do. What Clive Barker, going through all the trials he did to get Hellraiser made, says a lot about 
his desire to see this story realized on film and to mm-hmm. see it realized in an appropriate way. And we do ha- you mentioned something that, that we haven't talked about yet that needs to be said. We have to mention the opposite of an adaptation being appropriate. And we'll have to mention Rawhead Rex for that. Yes, Rawhead Rex, which was one of the stories from the Books of Blood. You know, I think it's fairly and often summarized as a giant penis running amok in, I don't know, Western England, I think, um, in the countryside. This was one adaptation, early adaptation of Clive's work. He thought that he had a good relationship with the filmmakers, but it turned out not to be so. And he was very, very displeased with what ended up happening to his story, which was one of his favorite stories. And granted, there's going to be some challenges in committing that particular vision to celluloid, but he clearly and justifiably felt that they completely butchered, even in the admittedly trashy (laughs) or, you know, sequences that would lend themselves to sensation very well. Like, you know, there's a scene where guy gets his face bitten off. There's no reason why you couldn't do that schlockily and well, but... I think that that was actually the film where they locked him off the set. They locked Clive Barker off the set. Yes. Yeah. I believe it's that one. And also he worked as a screenwriter on a film called Transfigurations. That I went think really it's, bad. Uh, Transmutations. Oh, Transmutations. Thank you. Yeah. Sorry. That went really badly. He basically had every bad thing happen to him. That can happen when you're trying to write for the movies. So he decided he was going to make his own movies. Well, you know, this happens all the time. And a lot of people just say, well, this is the industry. I'll just hopefully have more power next time. Or if this is successful, then maybe I'll be listened to more next time. And they kind of start going with the flow a little bit. But Clive Barker doesn't seem to be of that persuasion. (laughs) He's not. And, you know, he did have some experience. He was an art student. He had been in a play company called The Dog Company with Doug Bradley and a bunch of his other friends. You know, so he had experience not writing for the screen, but writing in a dramatic context. And he actually published a couple of books of the plays that he wrote during that period that I recommend are pretty good, especially History of the Devil. He had done some student films, so it wasn't that he was entirely unacquainted. And he's a huge movie fan, too. Mm-hmm. And I think that that probably played into his wish to make his vision work on celluloid, too, because he could see the possibilities and he could practically realize them. Right. And his theater experience is actually kind of evident in his filmmaking when it comes to the first Hellraiser film. And that actually has some strengths as well as some weaknesses. The theatrical aspects are more in the intimacy of the characters. And I think Mm -hmm. that is its strength. No, I think you're right. I think he did use his theatrical background to good advantage with Hellraiser. There's a particular shot set up that he uses a few times in Hellraiser that I really admired that would be, I can see coming out of the logic of working on a stage where you can't really uh, twist the audience's perception field (laughs) around. But you know where he will have a set piece and something terrible is going to happen. Mm-hmm. Someone's skin's going to get ripped off, etc. And you think that a door is going to close 
and save you from witnessing this. And it's going to be just off camera as such things usually are just off camera. And then it doesn't. Yeah. He, do- he pulls that a few times and it's beautiful. And know? it's it's amazing that it works because when filmmakers usually try that and decide they're going to show everything and mm-hmm. not hold anything back, a lot of times that's where their film fails. But for some reason in Hellraiser, because of the way he set it up, and I think most importantly, because he does write characters that are interesting and that yes. you have some involvement with, that the, those kind of horrors actually do play out well. Whereas in other kind of gore splatter things, they just might not, and it just ends up being gratuitous and silly. In, in this Hellraiser, it works. Yeah, and the characters are really well drawn. Hellraiser is extremely well acted, and he clearly had a real eye for performances. I mean, I know from, you know, being a fangirl and (laughs) having read all of his opinions about the movie, I know that he feels insecure about parts of it. I know that he thinks that he really didn't know what he was doing and that it gets better as it goes along because it was filmed sequentially. So he literally did get better (laughs) as he went along. But I think that he really did have a great appreciation for what aspects of the performance to highlight. And, you know, I don't want to minimize the contributions of the actors in that way, either because Claire Higgins does an outstanding job. Everyone does a great job. And Doug Bradley, who, you know, I we are going to lavish some praise on, that's going to happen. He does take this essentially nameless, I'm not going to say featureless because he has some pretty <laughs> uh, noticeable features, but he, he takes this, this character that is not a character, that is a force, mm-hmm. and still imbues it with personality and interest that still works. And that, that I think, why is why people latched on to Pinhead and Pinhead became sort of this de facto boogeyman for the Hellraiser series is because Doug Bradley was such a tour de force behind that makeup that you couldn't help it. Explorers in the further regions of experience, demons to some, angels to others. And you know, I'm not going to say that no one else could play Pinhead, but I'm not interested in ever seeing anyone else play pinhead it's he owns it Mm -hmm. and he hits the exact right note and even in some of the later sequels where his role is transformed significantly his performance always elevates it pain has a face allow me to show it to you gentlemen As much as it can be. <laughs> I mean, it it begs you beg for just another two seconds of Pinhead in these boring, <laughs> painful sequels. Like, oh God, just give me one more line, Doug Bradley. I need something to hold on to to keep my sanity in this film. When you read the Hellbound Heart, and we'll talk to we'll talk about this in the next little section. But with the Cenobites, there's no real sense other than maybe the engineer. There's no real sense that there's a real hierarchy. No, they're they're a hive mind. Exactly. But uh, you get that sense in the films. And I think that comes from the actors 
more than what Clive intended. And also from the fact that Doug Bradley is really the one who gets the most speaking lines. And cinematically speaking, I think there's this idea that you need some ubiquitous character to latch on to, which is a little unfortunate when it comes to big ideas like Hellraiser, but we also can't discount just how damn entertaining it is. <laughs> I do want to, as a final thought of that first Hellraiser film, the things that are really impressive is that this is a debut film from a non-filmmaker, really. And it comes from Clive Barker, who already had success in the literary world, as well as the art world and some other facets. And he's and he decided he was going to go for broke trying to make this film, Hellraiser. And he succeeded, and the film was successful. And as a debut film, and even if it wasn't a debut film, I still think it's pretty darn impressive. It's very impressive, and it's very not safe. No aspect of the film is safe. And he pushed for more than the MPAA would give him, as is usually the case with these sorts of ratings issues. They seem sort of nonsensical, like they were very concerned about the sexual aspects of the story and that kind of thing. And so, you know, they're counting thrusts and the, you know... <laughs> in the sex scene. In the sex scenes. In <laughs> Whereas, you know, there there are bludgeonings and skinnings and whatever else. Um, well, with the MPAA, they're always far more afraid of sex. None of this is surprising. They don't want to open that particular Hellraiser box. No. it's And what? this is a film that the sexual component is very important. It's very important to the story. He did tame it down quite a bit from the novella. Oh, yes. I mean, the novella is... You couldn't commit that to film without a fair... You couldn't. <laughs> well, it's it's funny because you're right. There are some things, but... And let's get to talking about The Hellbound Heart, which is the novella that Hellraiser is based on. Despite the changes that I think we're going to mention, Hellraiser is quite a faithful adaptation as far as adaptations go. It is, yes. I mean, he did make a few little tweaks. He changed in... The Hellbound Hearts, the heroine Kirsty, is a unrequited love interest of Rory, whose character is changed to Larry in the film. So he changes he changes Rory's name, which doesn't even matter. No. Um, and to Larry, which sounds quite similar. Indeed. And also very innocuous. Kirsty is changed from a non-girlfriend to a daughter, which is a pretty significant dynamic shift. It is. And I have, I have some ideas for why that is. And they're going to come strictly from conjecture because I haven't really researched it. But it seems like if you're going to make a genre film especially in 1988 there was that whole final girl aspect which kirsty definitely plays and mm -hmm. the kirsty in the hellbound heart is i guess she's described as rather homely and not very inspired and kind of self-pitying and yeah and dreamy yeah you know so she's sort of this this creature of frustrated wishes mm -hmm. which is interesting given the given the meat of the story mm -hmm. and i think um, it works in the novella i don't know if if I think maybe they would have thought it might not have worked as well cinematically. I, I think that's right. And I think the 
moving Kirsty to be uh, a more conventional final girl was probably a good decision as far as, you know, not letting the narrative get too complicated mm-hmm. and keeping this moving along also with a character who we could invest a lot of confidence in her agency. It also brings out that wicked stepmother aspect of the Julia character, who's Larry's wife. Right. And Kirsty's stepmother and helps her fit into the villain box a little more neatly. It's a dynamic shift, but it doesn't substantively change the narrative, really. Having Kirsty be a character who Rory regularly calls to come to the house and invites to parties and even approaches her when he's having marital troubles, having a, a unrequited love character fulfill that role is easier to write in a book but it's a little bit it might be a little jarring for a a film audience where why is he talking to this other girl it it starts to make rory have characteristics that might not be something that an audience would champion yeah and it's just it's a lot of mechanics to get across in time that we probably want to spend you know skinning people (laughs) exactly this is a practical consideration well you know i Um, wish that the later movies had taken these into consideration as well (laughs) and you know it's also interesting kirsty i detect in this film and also in hellraiser 2 a sub theme of kirsty also being drawn to the cenobites Mm-hmm. It seems like this is an undercurrent that's always being brought up by the Cenobites, who they're very careful to define at the outset. The Cenobites only come when they're called. Yeah. They're not going to take you against your will. Exactly. Well. That's what, well, yeah. Until you, well, they will. <laughs> if you, you go backseas, <laughs> they will come and get you. But, exactly. There's no yeah. backseas. But that initial thing has to be something you wanted. And that is what differentiates them from something like Jason Voorhees is they come at your bequest. <laughs> this little theme sort of running underneath everything else in, in these movies that concern Kirsty as the heroine. And also she apparently hooks up with one of her dad's friends you know that's basically done off screen Mm -hmm. but there's no judgment associated with it i mean what other final girl goes home with a guy and is woken up to you know a call to action while dressed in his shirt yeah no no final girls don't have sex No, (laughs) I think that that's interesting. And, you know, when she's in the last part of the movie, she has very 80s symbolism rich dreams, (laughs) things that are relatively cheap to film. Um, And one of those is, I think, a rose or some other flower blooming. That's in no way subtle. And, And that is her dream imagistic call to adventure there, too. So... Basically, I ship Kirsty and Pinhead. <laughs> <laughs> and for anyone listening, that is a uh, a fan nerd talk of saying Angela wants to see them together in a relationship. <laughs> I think that they would be adorable. <laughs> but um, <laughs> well, I think that they are together in a relationship. You'll hear a lot of the, this talk from nerds online about like the Cenobites keep saying that they want Kirsty to be there, and then they keep letting her go. And I think what people don't quite realize is they want her to come to them. They're not going to full on chase her in uh, Hellbound Hellraiser 2. You know, they kind of let her explore a little bit. (laughs) 
That's true. You yeah. know, go ahead. Go see what hell's got to offer. You'll come back, baby. I exactly. know you'll come back. If you love something, let it go. Yep. Let it go to the heart of the labyrinth. Exactly. They're not interested in being hunters. They're interested in being fulfillers. And I think that is that's kind of fascinating. That's something that's very different. And one of my own little sort of bugaboos about horror in this era is after the late 70s, when horror got really, really real for a few years there mm-hmm. in the aftermath of Vietnam. And so you've got monosyllabic or unspeaking, faceless butchers um, doing terrible things. Um, you, you get your leather faces and all of this. You start to have a reformation and you start to have sexy villains again. And I have nothing against sexy villains, but I do have a problem with the Lestatification of monsters. Um, again, for I anyone don't... listening, she's referring to the vampire Lestat from the Anne Rice novels. As well as in interview with a vampire. Yeah. So, which, you know, on their own merits, you know, that's fine. But it becomes trendy at, a, at about this point for monsters to become heroes. And this is something that's very, very popular now. And I mm-hmm. really can't wait for the pendulum to swing back the other way. It's almost like because, a Dexter thing. Yeah. It's like, at what point is Dexter not Batman? Right. Well, Batman doesn't use a lethal force. At what point is Dexter not the Punisher? I don't right. know. <laughs> I think the Punisher is a more apt comparison, but yeah, exactly. I know what you mean. And Clive is he's not entirely apart from this because, you know, as we've as we've said, he's he's interested in going beyond the conventional boundaries of horror which typically are understood to be kind of moralistic, really about uh, reinforcing status quo. It's not about exploring your temptations or anything like this, which that's not strictly true, but that's conventional wisdom. Well, horror definitely has roots in, say, morality plays. Absolutely. And, you know, the cathartic act of confronting your fears and, you know, play acting with your fears. I mean, you know, that's absolutely part of why horror works and is attractive. But Clive is interested in doing more than just play acting a situation to escape. He wants to be more experimental than that. I think he's trying to combat this kind of the comfort zone that people have started getting with characters like Jason Voorhees and Freddy, where they're basically turned into trick or treat masks and you know, yes. <laughs> monsters you'd have at home on the couch watching TV with a box of popcorn. I, I think he wants to go back to making things not comfortable. And that's what I really like about him um, in the context of this era, because, you know, he's not going to make Pinhead your boyfriend. He's not going to make Pinhead comfortable. He is going to spend more time and be more complicated than, you know, just scaring you. Being scared is just the beginning. And it's the conflict. It's like, I'm scared, but I want it. I am repulsed, but I can't look away. I'm going to think about it. And so I admire that Clive Barker manages to do something with the Hellbound Heart and Hellraiser that is very original and striking we'll talk about that and actually yeah let's get to that a little in a second here with the influences because i want to get to that right away while it's fresh in the minds because you're making really good points but i want to talk about really quickly some other key differences between the novella and the movie 
that uh, I think are important. And one of them we already talked about, kind of, which is the Cenobites themselves play a bit of a different role in terms of, again, there's not a real hierarchy. They're all kind of, like you said, a hive mind, which is very interesting. But I think an aspect that probably for MPAA reasons did not make it into the film, I should probably edit in another spoiler alert at this point, but is that in order for Frank to come back, it wasn't just the blood of Larry slash Rory on the floor. It also had to intermingle with some of Frank's dried, dead ejaculate that was on the floor because when he was experiencing the Cenobite transcendence, he masturbated and ejaculated on the floor. That was, that was kind of an important scene in the book. And yeah. you needed both the blood and the sperm even if they were dead. And it specifically says that in order for him to kind of break the wall and, and try to come back into our world. I could see Clive rationalizing that as it being implied maybe, but the petitioning ceremony in, in the movie is just, it's cut so much that yeah. it really does leave a lot to your imagination. It's interesting that Clive felt that this is the... This is the alchemy that is necessary in this universe to transcend the barrier. So, you know, sex is sex is part of the weft of this. You can't get away from that part of it. And he does translate it very well while toning down uh, some of the uh, more overt sexual stuff. Like, you know, the another big difference is the Cenobites have a great deal more explicit, like, genitals mutilation and scarification that sort of thing well i think another thing that's important to mention in in the film when at the beginning in the prologue where frank is solving the lamanchard configuration or lament configuration the box you know he solves it and basically immediately chains and blood Uh, yeah whereas in in the novella it's it's far more interesting he summons the cenobites they 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 say this is i find really fascinating they tell him that he obviously wants more than the world can give him and they give him an out and they say do you want this and he says show me and they're like are you sure there's no other there's no going back and he says show me again i mean that i find that very interesting even when they're summoned they're like are you sure you want this <laughs> you're right they're very um they they have sort of a entrance interview. <laughs> they do. They have an entrance is, interview. It's very lovely of them. Really. Well, they also they also get him prepped for what he's about to experience, and you don't realize this till the end of the chapter. And sorry, spoiler alerts, but you should have read this by now. <laughs> true, true. Frank, before you don't realize as a reader what's happening, but once he says "show me," he goes through this kind of like daredevil like experience where his senses are hyper realized and he feels everything you know much more acutely he hears and smells and tastes much more acutely in order to prep him for having more intense experiences and frank is suffering it's much more than he bargained for and uh, as a reader you're thinking this is the hell he masturbates and ejaculates at this point in order and again in the book he says he does it not to get pleasure, but just to get it over with. Joyless, racking orgasm, I believe. <laughs> yes, exactly. 
<laughs> which is also a really interesting uh, way to 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 talk about that and, and Frank's views on sex to begin with. But uh, this is what I absolutely adore is he's finished. The senses kind of calm down a little bit. And then the female Cenobite appears. And one of the greatest lines in the book, now we can begin. <laughs> yes. And they, the chapter ends there. That's a really important scene and completely not in the film at all. No, absolutely not. It's an interesting, I mean, you know, clearly the MPAA, the nanny state, they would not have stood for it. But I think that he does manage to get quite a lot done with implication. Yeah. It is unfortunate, though, that that aspect is uh, low lighted because in the successive sequels, all of a sudden it becomes if you open the box chains, what there's, you know, this consent wall is absolutely vanished. And that's one of the more insidious and horrifying aspects of it. You've got to want it. You've got to want it. For me, that's the most fascinating is, is the idea that that it's something you are asking for, you know, and you ask for it multiple times. And you know what else is really great? It's not just that you've got to want it, you've got to ask for it, you've got to click yes, I'm over 18, etc. <laughs> it's not just that, it's that after you go through all of this, you're glad, except for Frank. <laughs> Frank, Frank, Frank wants to come back. I think you're um, you're probably referring to Doctor Chenard in the second film. The Cenobites in general, mm -hmm. um, although Doctor Chenard in the second film, I mean, I have so many problems with Doctor Chenard once he turns into a Cenobite. He is terrible, and I'm sorry. I want to love him, and I do up to that point, but. After he's been made into a ridiculous Cenobite, he comes out of the Cenobite making machine and he says, to think I hesitated. It's so beautiful. I mean, that entire abortion of a film justifies its existence completely. Yeah, um, that's a great line. It's beautiful. And I shouldn't call that film an abortion because it's way, way better than anything that would come after it. But, you know, generally that is something that the series... Uh, stays faithful to if you can say it stays faithful in any aspect it's the cenobites once you've been cenobited you don't go back and you don't want to go back yeah it's it's a a transcendence you you have it's like uh coming out of the cocoon as a pretty infibrillated butterfly <laughs> well it, it's interesting that the scarification and the tears and the lacerations and all this this that and the other are presented as elegance and that's also where doug bradley shines particularly is is he's very elegant and the way he speaks is very elegant and the way they dress is snm elegant <laughs> but it is in this form of the scarified creatures and i think we'll go here to you know some of the big influences that led to the cenobites and hellraiser and all this stuff uh, from from Clive Barker's point of view, I mentioned S and M. Let's let's talk about the punk movement and S and M clubs. Once you really look at them, you can see kind of the anatomy of influences. Mm -hmm. I think you know they're pretty plain, but the synthesis is really the brilliant aspect of it because 
as much as I might try, I can't think of anything preceding them that approaches this particular vein of repulsive glamour. But, you Mm -hmm. know, obviously punk, Clive was a British guy of that generation. If you go on YouTube, you can see lots of interviews with him where he's got spiked hair. (laughs) And he looks fabulous. S&M, Clive liked to partake of S&M and went to some clubs and things. And Mm -hmm. that is a very clear influence with the piercings and, you know, even the needles, the nails in Pinhead's head, uh, the leather. The leather, definitely. The leather look. Well, I mean, it's body modification in S&M. And I think it's interesting to say, okay, here are some of the things that compel people toward S&M or some of the things that compel people toward body modification. And we're just going to take that to the next level, to a level of afterlife. The ethic behind the Cenobites. Uh, you can't get much more S&M than that. <laughs> I mean, it's all about consent. <laughs> consent and pain and pleasure being uttered in the same sentence. Absolutely. There are no safe words. There are. <laughs> not with the Cenobites. <laughs> not with the Cenobites. <laughs> not, once, not once you've said, show me, twice. <laughs> <laughs> But I think the punk aspects, yes, you know, this kind of uh, gutter chic as well as the S&M aspects are all obviously there. And he could have taken that and run with it. But Mm -hmm. it's the infusion of the Cenobites as almost a a Catholic. They have a very Catholic feel to them, the Catholicism aspect of them, which is even more plain in the book, but but still actually really well shown in the films themselves. This is this idea that they are, in a way, monks. Absolutely. You know, they're priestly. They're, yeah. they're wearing modified cassocks, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, punked out cassocks. I remember Johnny Rotten, one of his whole deals was, you know, to take a very nice suit, rip it up refasten it with safety pins and pinhead's basically done that only you know he's done it with bits of himself and cassock a monk's cassock or a priest's cassock they're bearing the fact that they are a hive mind they're unified in purpose they're very grave and Mm -hmm. serious about it they're not salacious you know even you know the female cenobite in the first movie and actually in the second movie you know she can be a little uh coquettish perhaps <laughs> uh, are you teasing us yes. um but she's even in that aspect they're quite serious about what they do and they have a very somber uh, tone the score in the first and second films especially and particularly in the first film highlights this the yeah highlights this beautifully and in the novella when you are solving the box and you're calling them forth the first thing you hear are church bells the clang of, of, of church bells, and, and you hear that perpetually. They don't do that so much in the film, but whenever the Cenobites do appear, that's part of the score, is this gong of a church bell. Mm-hmm. And it's very creepy. <laughs> but it's also very Catholic, you know. And for me, that's part of what gives the film a feeling that transcends just a horror film. And I say that as a huge horror maven, so I'm not in any way trying to be pejorative, uh, yeah. minimize or be pejorative. No, but it gives it a, a fantastic aspect. Right. 
Now, I mean, because the association of Catholic imagery and, uh, you know, organ music and that sort of thing, that you're going to find that very closely allied in a lot of horror. But the particular tone that they strike in Hellraiser is a bit grander. It's more small-sy Catholic in some ways. Mm-hmm. Also, as far as the bells going, it's very subtle. And I'm sure you probably noticed this, but in the scene where where they're moving the bed, you know, mm-hmm. symbolically the bed, <laughs> they're moving the bed into the new house where Frank was taken by the Cenobites. And so the portal of his blood is in this house. They're taking the bed upstairs and Larry tears his hand on a nail that's projecting in this narrow staircase, you know, bleeding and everything. And you can hear distantly in the background. It's it's mixed so that it's not like an overt part of the score, but you can hear the bells. And it sounds like wedding bells, mm. which is both a nice little touch because, you know, this is like the marriage bed that's going upstairs. And while, um, while Larry's wife is thinking about Frank and how they got all snuggly right before <laughs> she married his brother and all of that. It's kind of neat in that aspect, but it also heralds not the Cenobites in this case, but, you know, the opening of the portal. And all of that is just so well done uh, in both the book and the movie. But, you know, I hadn't I'm going to have to go back and rewatch that particular nail in the hand scene again and listen more closely and intently for the score. I am so always paying attention to the nail slicing his hand, which I find really cringeworthy that I think it takes my attention away from the score. It's not, I mean, you know, like I said, it's not a proper part of the score. It's like background noise. Yeah. But if. But they put it there for a reason. It's absolutely there for a reason. It's a nice, it's almost a subliminal little cue. And if you've read the novella, it's absolutely a cue. Yeah, it's it's the first thing, it's what you listen for, yeah. Okay, so you do have a conjecture about Dracula, the character, being an influence on Hellraiser. How do you think that, that relates? Again, just from being a fangirl and having lovingly, stared at Clive Barker in interviews for years. He always speaks very admiringly of the aspects of monstrousness that allow one to uh, transcend form. Mm-hmm. Um, and he almost uses the same words, you know, across years. Um, and he always sort of invokes Dracula because, you know, Dracula can change into a wolf and a bat and smoke and all of that. And he's still this really cool, sexy, glamorous guy in films anyway. I guess he's kind of crusty in the book. <laughs> At least for part of the book. But, you know, as long as we're thinking of Christopher Lee and Bela Lugosi, I find Pinhead's performance or Pinhead's performance. I find Doug, Bar- <laughs> Doug Bradley's performance as Pinhead and, you know, Pinhead's performance. Ubiquitous, uh, as we said. <laughs> I find it very reminiscent of Dracula in in those aspects. And it is, again, I suppose Dracula doesn't have quite the detailed consent form uh, process that the Cenobites have, but you do have to invite a vampire in. That's clearly an aspect of of this monstrous relationship that Clive's interested in and is, is clinging to a little bit. And a lot of Pinhead's more memorable lines, like, I have such sights to show you. That is so, listen to them, the children of the night, what music they make. I think it's I, that regal aspect of it. That it's something that commands respect. 
Yeah, and and you know, this is a a being that has been human and lives on the other side of this uh, transformation who can impart that to you <laughs> if you open yourself up to it. Um, so I see, uh, I see an inheritance, particularly in how Pinhead is dramatized. That's just me, me saying. But when I cast back in my mind and I look for precedents, I don't see very many. But when I hear, when I hear some of the more awesome Pinhead one-liners, I I don't feel like he's playing Dracula. I don't feel like it's an overt attempt to recreate that. But I, I see I see Dracula DNA, and also that probably speaks to Pinhead's appeal and why we arrow into that personality at some at some level if we are going to experience something or some darkness then we want it to come from something that we can respect or something that we can have a kind of awe over you know there has to be an that makes us feel awe or wonder and that makes it more interesting you know i remember a stephen king interview talking about randall flag yeah. And, you know, people criticizing Randall Flagg for, you know, towards the end, you know, becoming uh, relatively tawdry and impotent. Mm-hmm. And he said it was because he had a deliberate wish to show that evil up close, you know, was diminished. You know, that evil only looms large when you take it, you know, operating under all of its illusions and sort of thing. But really, evil is a small thing, and you can overcome it. Clive doesn't have that mandate anywhere in his, <laughs> in his work, and I think it's possibly more honest. It depends. I, I think it depends on where the evil's going. I can, in a way, I can take Stephen King's view and agree with it, depending on who where the evil is that we're talking about. That's why, you know, with familiarity brings contempt kind of thing. You know, that's why Freddy Krueger ended up being just a one-liner spewing jokester. And, you know, the more we see these things, the the less scary they are. The, The more they're hidden and in the shadows, the more scary they are. And the fear comes from the unknown and the mystery and the less we see. But I do think that Clive Barker with the Cenobites and with Hellraiser, particularly Clive Barker's vision, is that even when we get to know it, and since knowledge is part of the impetus there, the -hmm. knowledge itself is terrifying. It's kind of like an exact opposite of, Mm -hmm. of what I was talking and that. To to even have the gall to attempt that is very <laughs> interesting because it usually is is a better idea to keep things cloaked. But as you said, I don't think that that keeping things cloaked that it, it destroys the theme of Hellraiser, which is mm-hmm. actually eating from the apple of the tree of knowledge. You know, yeah. absolutely. And when you've got a big bold imagination, maybe there's less incentive to keep things half lit. Exactly. Exactly. And yeah, if I were to make suggestions, I would actually tell people to do the opposite and go more the Stephen King way, because that Mm -hmm. tends to be the more effective way. I think that Clive Barker 
and this particular world is is like a one in a million shot actually that's true the barriers are very permeable and the experiences are very complicated and i will say you know like we were talking before clive doesn't scare me usually right you know he may be unsettling he he's definitely challenging well it's Um, not a boo scare it's not a boo scare it's a it's a redefinition of your idea of reality scare but if you're pretty open-minded anyway (laughs) it quickly becomes much more of a fantasy than horror whereas you know i've had the lights on because of stephen king many times yeah (laughs) it's true and stephen king recognized right away that clive barker was some absolutely and clive has thanked him effusively and justifiably for giving him a career because you know clive barker could have been much more slush pile for much longer. I mean, it's hard to believe that um, his work would stay buried forever. But he definitely got a huge boost when Stephen King came out and said, I have seen the future of horror and it is Clive Barker. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's a ticket. That's your golden ticket. And he used it. <laughs> All right, let's move on. You mentioned to me, this is a, an interesting thought process, and I've never really used these terms before but i get it you have an obsession with seeking out and discovering what are commonly known as memes because they indicate the cultural value of a given story so talk to me a little bit about your view of memes and you might have to define what a meme is exactly and we're going to talk about some of the hellraiser memes that signify its cultural significance Well, memes has generally become common parlance for those impact fonts, screen caps that you'll see on Reddit and then on Facebook one week later. Things like uh, Sudden Realization Keanu and um, that kind of thing. That's not the kind of memes I'm talking about. I'm not talking about lolcats. I'm talking about ideas, basically ideas, but looking at ideas as something that is uh, a companion to genes. Mm -hmm. So much as in how your your DNA has certain information that's carried forward to, you know, your offspring uh, and uh, your characteristics will show up uh, generations down the line. Um, Many of your characteristics belong to ancestors that you have no idea existed that sort of thing. Memes are the same thing, only in idea form. But because they are ideas, they're excruciatingly difficult to pin down or to define or discuss properly. It's a little bit nebulous. You can't measure an idea. It is nebulous. You can't can't take an idea with calipers and say, okay, where we were talking about influences that go into Hellraiser, you know, I can conjecture that knowing that Clive is an admirer of Dracula as a character and, and, you know, filmic interpretations of Dracula that the characteristics that I see in common with Dracula, with uh, Pinhead, you know, that there is a relationship, but there may well not be. Yeah. And also, since ideas operate consciously and unconsciously, it makes it even that much harder to pin down and understand in any sort of useful way. So since it's completely difficult to define and talk about, I think about it a lot. I am particularly interested in how this works in horror because I love horror. 
I think it's very useful. I think that when you look at the films and stories that take hold in uh, the popular imagination, it ends up being very revealing about the society. Mm-hmm. And that can be useful, be, you know, legitimately useful from uh, that sort of cultural anthropological viewpoint. Um, it can be useful to you individually to try to understand why something is resonating with you and resonating with your friends and peers. You know, like, why is found footage so ubiquitous now? Is it just because it's cheap and it has great ROI? Yes. But <laughs> it also works. Why does it work? Can you talk about what, what is ROI real quick? Return on investment. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I, I don't like to use <laughs> acronyms. I am so sorry. <laughs> so, and you know, horror is, horror and pornography are often dismissed mm-hmm. for as being really subliterate. Yeah. And as though there's no intrinsic value in them because they uh, engage you at a more subconscious level. But I would argue that's exactly why they're even more important to look at. And so whenever anything is really popular and whenever anything takes hold in any genre, but I'm particularly interested in horror, I want to take out the impossible calipers and figure out why and what's the value. And also, what about this is going to last? What about this is going to go forward and be important Because so many stories that we're familiar with that get a lot of power from being retold and reinterpreted and rebooted, so many of these depart from the original impetus. And, you know, we've already talked about how Hellraiser is largely pretty faithful interpretation by the original author onto film, but he did make changes. Yeah. And he made changes for practical reasons, I'm sure. He probably made changes for reasons that, you know, maybe it just worked better for him. Maybe it worked better for the format. Maybe having written things, you know, sometimes sometimes you just have a better idea later. Or, you know, on a since film is so collaborative, maybe someone else has a better idea later. But, you know, he did make changes and those changes are important. But what do people remember? What do people take away? The point of the Hellbound Heart novel, I don't feel would be very controversial. We've talked about it. It's that Frank is going beyond with the Cenobites. The Cenobites are the least of it. The Cenobites are a force. They're an incarnation of a force. There's no moral attached to the force. There's no personality attached to it. When it gets... Translated to film, you know, as you had noted, it's quite natural to hone in on a voice, Pinhead's face. It's a very striking image. It's a, it's an interesting, it's an unforgettable image. Mm-hmm. It's an unprecedented image. Does that image become more important than the point of the original story? Is that image the thing that's going to get copy stamped? down to future generations is that the meme well not I mean, that there has to be one yeah. i'm just saying and so yes you i don't think so i think that the image will become a symbol of the greater ideas 
as time goes by and as we see what gains longevity because <laughs> we can lament <laughs> the fact that there are nine of these films and only almost, two of them really yeah only ha- two of them really are part of this universe exactly most of them are completely forgettable but honestly of the last seven of those films three through nine sorry hell on earth but you know three through nine yeah none of them are really going to be what people talk about if people talk about this mythos it's gonna and i don't even think two will be to be honest no i think it's gonna be only the first one and i think it's because the first one had meat to it the first one had these ideas that lend substance to it the others kind of don't and 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 again the, the substance gets thinner and thinner and thinner as the series progresses so yeah pinhead will show up for 2 seconds in hellseeker <laughs> but uh, literally 2 seconds exactly but that uh, no one's going to remember hellseeker because pinhead was in it or hellworld or debtor or any of those no one's going to remember any of those movies because Doug Bradley took a few seconds to go in and put the makeup on and say some lines and then go home, you know. The fact that Pinhead is a face that people can attach to in a symbolic way, I don't think will remove what actually draws people to these stories. And that's mm-hmm. going to be only the first one, honestly. The second one has it only in as much as that it was just kind of aping the first one. So I think that while Pinhead might be the little man symbol on a bathroom sign, I think it's going to have an understanding of other stuff beneath it for the people who take the time to actually discuss these things in the first place. You know, the, you know? the, the, uh, the Lament configuration or Lamanchard's configuration, the box, same thing. I think that that has become meme-like as Pinhead, Pinhead's face. Probably because it looks cool, you know? It does look cool. <laughs> and it does. And in fact, it looks so cool that it has existed in static form through all nine films, including Revelations, where Doug Bradley doesn't even play Pinhead anymore. But the box looks the same. It moves the same way. It does the same twists and turns because you can't fix what ain't broke, you know? Especially when it comes to that, so... Uh, I think that the box is symbolically what will be remembered. But I think both Pinhead's face and the box are mostly going to be remembered because that first movie had something to hold on to. If, if Clive Barker's first Hellraiser film was a throwaway, then Pinhead and the box can look as cool as they want to be. They're not going to be remembered. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I, I, I really think that uh, that they act as symbols for everything else. And if they are remembered, it's because there was something to them in the first place. I love that. I really want that to be the way it is. <laughs> I, I, I want to live in that world. Well, I mean, how many people do you see? I, I, if you talk about film with people, and especially horror film, and even horror literature, and Hellraiser, or Hellbound Heart, or Pinhead, or any of these come up, what you end up talking about are these ideas we've been talking about so far on this podcast. You know, desire, mm-hmm. pain, pleasure, all this stuff. 
you don't hear anyone talking about Hellworld. <laughs> you know? It's true. Although <laughs> Lance Henriksen is awesome in Hellworld. Don't oh, watch it. It's, it's not worth it. <laughs> Lance is good. <laughs> I can, I, of all of those shitty movies, I think... <laughs> I think Hellworld has the greatest misunderstanding of Pinhead as a character. <laughs> He's not even a punchline. Uh, really, they uh, they copy pasted Pinhead's quote unquote role, you know, put it on Lance. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, so when they had really, him slicing that kid's head off, I'm like, oh, are you serious? He would never. Yeah, that's not. No, you don't understand at all. <laughs> you do not understand. Yeah, no, it, it's a complete lack of understanding. And anyway, that's what I mean. I think like, yes. yes, all these other movies have been made, but no, they are not being remembered. No, I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't remember one occasion where I've sat down with someone, even like the the biggest horror nerd. And mm-hmm. they want to talk about debtor, <laughs> you know, it, it, it doesn't. Yeah, that, that is true. You don't see the same recapitulation of the other Cenobites with the exception of the chatterer. He came or he, she came up a few <laughs> in a few different incarnations that I, which the chatterer is pretty that's really effective. Yes. I think it, you know, minds uh, everybody's instinctive fear of the dentist. Um, <laughs> yeah. Pretty effectively. Well, you're right. And and there are there are visually compelling things like the chatter as well as a, a, an aural an aural factor to it with the the click click clicking of the teeth. But at the same time, chatterer appears in Revelations as female chatterer. Chatterer mm-hmm. appears, oh, as a dog. But, yeah, the chatter dog. Yeah. In Bloodlines. In Bloodlines. Um, and, uh, and Bloodlines and has Inferno. its status. Inferno. kind of. Oh, yeah, that was Legless yeah. Chatterer. Legless Chatterer. Yeah. I want to say still... that there was a Chatterer in one of the three uh, Rick Boda oh, joints. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but the point I want to make is... Nobody cares about those movies. You know, some people All right, I'll give Bloodline an out here because some people do care about that in terms of what it attempted to do. But mm-hmm. uh, but, you know, from Inferno onward, nobody cares. Yeah, they, it, it's the same way of having Pinhead a, a show up for two seconds in Hellworld. Mm-hmm. If you had Chatterer appear for two seconds in Hellworld, it, it won't make Hellworld any more compelling and it won't make Hellworld any more apt to get discussed in the future. But the first mm-hmm. Hellraiser will be. So it goes beyond Chatterer just being cool, which goes without saying, you know. Mm-hmm. But it's because you have this cool, you know, the coolness of Pinhead's face, the coolness of the box, the coolness of the Cenobites in general is rather superficial. And if they didn't have all the other aspects that we've talked about underlying them, then they would kind of float away. Like many things have. I don't I don't think you have to worry. <laughs> I'm trying not to. And I as you're talking, you know, I'm thinking about thinking about the callback or the callback reference in Cabin of the Woods. Oh yes, um, yes, with the uh it has the Cenobite ish character with the uh like circle circular saw blades in his head. Yeah, and you know, I'm thinking there was just enough suggestion of the Cenobite ethic. Mm-hmm. 
in that. Well, I, I think, yeah, just what Pinhead represents, like what you're saying, that he represents the transcendent, repulsive, glamour ethic thing. If you look at, at Cabin in the Woods and that particular monster, there's a huge difference between that one and pretty much all the other monsters, which, you know, once the doors open at the end of Cabin in the Woods, and yes, again, spoiler alert. <laughs> yes. I don't care about spoilers on this show. I think <laughs> this is going to be like episode 137. If you guys don't know this by now, then anyway. You need to see Cabin in the Woods. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, when the doors open at the end of Cabin in the Woods and the monsters just run amok, that mm-hmm. one kind of doesn't. No, it's true. He still stands there and just stares and he doesn't have any lines. But the idea is he's above such things and he'll just wait till you come to him. Yeah. And, you know, I was thinking about that and thinking about the truth of your statement. He was called Fornicus, the the Lord of Bondage and Pain, (laughs) by the way. I think that is for comedic effect. But yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But then, you know, I think about. The many times that Penhead has popped up in things like um, The Simpsons. Yes. And he pops up as another boogeyman. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But that's inevitable. Yes. The cereal box monsterfication of these characters, of any easily identifiable image, is inevitable. That does not necessarily assign its um, or designate its true value as a meme. And it won't, and it also will not, will not define its legacy. Yeah, that's what worries me. I don't want, I don't want Pinhead to be degraded. That would be terrible. <laughs> Are you sure it's Kirsty you want shipped with Pinhead? This is- <laughs> <laughs> well, Final Girls are sort of a Mary Sue proxy, right? <laughs> yeah, actually, <laughs> good point. <laughs> Since we talked a lot about the meme and the cultural significance, let's head toward aesthetic legacy of, I guess, just the, the Cenobites or the Hellraiser universe in general, where we see, because the Cenobites from in the original Hellraiser, that whole idea, and not only the idea, but their look, was really original. <laughs> and it really is. I mean, you know, like I said, you can see all of the, you know, ingredients in the soup, but what it ends up being is there's no- nothing was like it before, and anything that's like it after is like it because it existed. Right, exactly. And and we've you've mentioned a couple of references, like that one character in Cabin in the Woods, uh, it popped up in The Simpsons. You'll see it meant you'll see Hellraiser or, or Pinhead mentioned in various movies and pop culture references and blah 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 blah, uh, all over the place. And in fact, you sent me a link that I'm probably going to link to on the website that has you know basically a, a a list of various Hellraiser references. So many monsters, you know since Hellraiser have completely kind of co-opted the uh, the general Cenobite look to where it's almost, you know, it's become a monster flavor, yeah. really. I mean, One that know, didn't exist before the Cenobites. Absolutely did not. Yeah. I mean, everything, I mean, you know, Tetsuo, the <laughs> Iron Man, is contemporaneous. Mm-hmm. And I haven't looked into pre-existing anime but you know generally that look i mean you're gonna see it 
with um, Virus. Did you see that? Yeah. Um, with with Donald that, Sutherland. Donald and Sutherland. I mean, mm-hmm. they're basically Donald Sutherland and the unidentifiable accent. Um, <laughs> and Jamie Lee Curtis. And I, you know, just as a personal note, I, I do like to watch it because, you know, I speak very bad Russian. And the plot of it is they're taking these Cenobite-like things are taking over this uh, stranded Russian tanker salvage ship thing. And they have like little pleas for help written in blood in <laughs> Russian on the walls, which is always delights me. Yeah. Oh my God. Why would anyone take that much time to write that? But, but I do um, think uh, the, Bo- like you mentioned the Borg in Star the Trek. The Borg. Very Cenobite looking, black Very leather-ish. Cenobite. I mean, uh, apart from the fact that they, <laughs> there is no consent agreement. The hive mind. They do have the hive mind. They have the, um, not priestly deportment, perhaps, but they are somewhat exalted. You but know, and arrogant. Very arrogant. And um, uh, resistance is futile is something that maybe Pinhead might say at some point. <laughs> It probably did say at some point. (laughs) It's first contact. When we're first introduced to the Borg Queen, Mm. you know, who is the individual Borg, she is extremely Cenobite-like, very uh, visually reminiscent of Angelique from Bloodlines. Um, And, you know, she's characterizing, she's tempting Data, and it's, you know, very much uh, a sexual invitation um, but, you know, a sexual Im- invitation with uh, extra, lots of extra implication, much like with the Cenobites. <laughs> so um, I'm not sure that the Borg, certainly, you know, there are different cyborg representations pre-existing uh, Hellraiser. I'm not sure that they would look like they look without Cenobites because they look like Cenobites. Yeah, like um, we, we can't say with real certainty that the people saw the Cenobites and put that into the Borg. However, it's really easy to see that there may be some flavor there. And again, this comes from conjecture, but it also, you know, it's there. Look at it. (laughs) In Silent Hill, I mean... Silent Hill very much. It's so informed by the Cenobite aesthetic. And, you know, in fact, when we were watching some of the lesser Hellraisers, I mean, those films could have very easily been Silent Hill films. Yeah, particularly Hellraiser Inferno. Yeah, I mean, When it comes down to even how the Cenobite-esque, if you can even call them Cenobite-type characters in that film, how they looked, look like a Silent Hill monster more than... um, but you're right. I think this idea of uh, a, especially Silent Hill 2, where a big part of that story was uh, the hellish version of everything was an aspect of the main character's own personality. Um, mm-hmm. That is v- very much a Hellraiser tr- idea. I-, I think the last thing, I think you mentioned Event Horizon. And Event Horizon is so... <laughs> I mean, they really should have paid some royalties to Clive Barker. Yeah. That is 
apart from the fact that it's kind of awful, you know, there's there are movies. I that have, I have a lot to of apologize to people. <laughs> I I have a lot of affection for what they attempted to do, and yeah. I remember watching the makings of before it came out and being like, oh wow, this is so cool, and they're trying to do like a gothic cathedral, which is again a whole Catholic influence, and really really neat. And I always love Sam Neill, but there are three movies that I have gone to friends with at the theater and had to apologize for afterwards Mm -hmm. hellraiser bloodline (laughs) virus and event horizon (laughs) Mm, funny all things that you say kind of pay homage to the aesthetic legacy of the cenobites there's a similitude yeah sam neill's character gives a great inspired by pinhead speech Mm -hmm. it's super good um and you know there are many 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 more examples well um, his character at the end is filled with he's, it's all the scarification he's just completely cut up and again, yeah you know that, that even a, a just a visual aesthetic there yes that's true they're they are out there we mentioned at the beginning of this episode there are comic books uh there was the tortured souls line of toys hellraiser has a place in pop culture A lot of people make a lot of the fact that as a horror film franchise, it is the least lucrative one. (laughs) But I would venture to say that that's because of mishandling of the franchise rather than anything inherently wrong with the original ideas. Absolutely. Hellraiser is a beautiful film. It's still a beautiful film. It's effective as a horror film, but it has so much more going on and has ideas that just do not become outmoded it's a really intimate story it's something that really deserves a lot of attention and doesn't deserve to be uh farmed out as superficial images yeah because that's never what it's been about for something that is at its root so much concerned with sex and violence it's really probably one of the less salacious films uh horror films you'll ever see yeah, and that's that is that is a contradiction because it's also one of the bloodiest and <laughs> most sexual. But there's so yeah. much substance behind the sex and violence, and I think that is where your interpretation comes from. It it's not sex and violence to you know to titillate necessarily, although maybe a little bit, but necessarily. But there there's reasons for it. There are things that are trying to be communicated with Hellraiser that go beyond just looking cool. But in terms of violence and sex, it's pretty explicit. It's very explicit, but it's not tawdry. Yes. And there's a difference there. Yeah. There's a scene in the first one. And I paid a lot of attention to this because, you know, I'm actually, I'm reviewing all of the Hellraisers on thelosthighway.com. Check it out. Um, but we like to pay attention to, you know, whether films have boobs in the tradition of Joe Bob Briggs. And so I was keeping very attentive track of this and there really aren't any. And I know, you know, that Clive was very strictly overseen making it as far as the sexual content, but there is a scene where if you, you can totally see Frank's junk. (laughs) <laughs> the mp uh, did you go MPAA frame by frame was, i did not <laughs> just wondering i was an unwilling participant i did not sign a consent form it's just totally there it's like oh my god 
Where are the blue nose blue nosed grannies? <laughs> but boobs? Not really. No, not in the first one. A little side boob. Yeah. Julia boob. in her chemise. <laughs> That's all you're getting. <laughs> yeah, they uh, the boobs come later in the series. Boobs of all kinds. <laughs> Especially the stupid kinds. <laughs> Sorry, boobs. Nothing against the boobs. It is a thought-provoking, not necessarily erection-provoking film. We should. I'll just say in passing that talks of rebooting and sequels and all that are have always been around in in development hell, and part of me hopes they stay that way. Well, you know, there's not. There's not really a reason to reboot it except to maybe have a more convincing CGI effect on the box opening. That's the only thing I'd change. (laughs) Fair enough. The book, The Scarlet Gospels, who knows if that would be up for a a treatment. That's something that only time will tell. But... Clive's stuff is pretty notoriously unadapted for a film. I, you know, I mean, very Lovecraftian in that way. It's he has so many projects that have almost gotten there, right? And probably would translate very well if someone was caring and had a big budget. But it they just never happen. Like Thief of Always has been in development hell for always. Weave World miniseries. I think Imagica was talked about, which that is never going to happen. That book is not going to know Great and Secret Show, etc. Well, but they're all in print, kids, and you can read them, and they're awesome. And that's the thing, you know, like part of me says, What is wrong with just reading the books? <laughs> There's nothing wrong with reading the books. And I, I want that to be the one to grow on for this episode. Okay. <laughs> There's nothing really wrong. The literature, the books, the books shouldn't exist so you can get a cool movie. The books are great and tend to be better anyway. Would you recommend The Hellbound Heart over Hellraiser or would you tend to say these are different versions in, of the same vision? In the case of Hellraiser, I would say they are great companions. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I think. Agree. Yeah, I think they are great companions. I do think that a Hellraiser fan should absolutely read The Hellbound Heart. I will put it that way. I think The Hellbound Heart is such a brief read. It's a novella. It's not very long. And it's very satisfying. So Mm -hmm. I think anyone should read that. Um, And I don't think that Hellraiser the film is inferior to it either. I think the Hellraiser film is is a great work of its own right. It's just a different medium. You yes. know? And that's that's what I'll say about that. Now, when we start getting into Hellraiser 2 through 9, different story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, if I could make a Terminator, I might go back and stop him. <laughs> oh, gosh, I'm having bad visions of you <laughs> in a crater surrounded by smoke, and that's all I'll say. <laughs> that would be awesome Um, all right we're gonna do two things now we each created a cenobite for ourselves. we'll describe them here but i'll have pictures available that i'm drawing myself on the website and then you have a eulogy for the passing of pinhead and i'll have you read that and then uh yeah we'll talk about our social media stuff and then say goodbye 
So I'll have you go first. Talk about your Cenobite, the Angela Englert Cenobite. Okay. My Cenobite, this is the Cenobite I think I'm going with. After watching all the Hellraisers, I was very tempted to have a Cenobite with my hand fused to my face (laughs) so I could be constantly face palming. But instead, um, my Cenobite will have, because I am actually a big bibliophile, and as an extra little bonus credit to Clive Barker and his books of blood, everybody is a book of blood. Whenever we're opened, we are read. That's his joke. I would have my skin flayed into, you know, vellum depth pages with stuff written on them. I don't know, maybe recipes or, you know, stuff from my Tumblr, um, Hellraiser movie reviews, something like that. Um, on the pages all over my body. And I would have sort of like habiliments that in keeping with the sort of uh, leathery vibe of Hellraiser, but also with regard to my masters, my dogs, I would have these things made of like dog leashes all over. Sort of like Lulu's skirt in uh, Final Fantasy Ten. <laughs> oh my God! <laughs> That's one for you, gamer nerds. <laughs> um, so that that would be my Cinnabite. What's your Cinnabite look like, Miguel? That's gonna be tough to draw, but I'm gonna go for it. <laughs> okay. All right. My Cenobite comes from me having to watch many, many, many films right now, particularly submissions, because I'm currently in submission season for Horrible Imaginings Film Festival, taking place, by the way, September 11th through 13th at the Museum of Photographic Arts in Balboa Park, right here in San Diego. We have well over 700 submissions so far, which is a lot of films to watch. So, with all of that watching, my Cenobite... From watching so many movies, my eyelids will be sliced. So the top lids will be stretched up and fixed to the top of my skull. The bottom lids will be stretched down, inside out, of course, with uh, most of the facial dermal with it, and fixed to the bottom of my face. There, the two bottom lids will will meet and be pinned over my mouth because one does not speak when watching movies so uh my mouth will be pinned in silence with those the rims of the eye holes so i've got the skull with the the eye sitting in the socket there but the rim the actual bone will be chiseled away so that the eyes seem even larger and constantly watching with perhaps some little metal filaments keeping them in place since the bone has been removed and that will be my cenobite Wow. That's going to take some Neosporin. <laughs> yes, and perhaps some, some Visine as well. <laughs> <laughs> Before you read your eulogy, I do want to invite anyone out there who's listening to this, if you want to submit your Cenobite, I will draw it for you. So figure out your Cenobite, and, and maybe we'll have a little gallery of friend Cenobites on the website. Oh, that would be awesome. Yeah. It'd be a great wallpaper. (laughs) All right. Eulogizing? Eulogizing. All right. This is our pinhead eulogy. Hellraiser debuted when I was just a kid. I've never known a horror universe without Pinhead, and I wouldn't want to. He has many precedents, but no peers, many imitators, but no successors. 
Pinhead is the high priest of an ethic that straddles punishment and mercy. He is a monster of principle and transcendent virtue that can never be coerced, resisted, or tamed. It is usual for monsters to become domesticated through familiarity. Dracula takes other names, sparkles in the sunlight, and loves unlovable adolescents. Jason becomes a perverse John McLean, and you pump your fist in congratulations as he ticks up the body count in creative ways. Not so Pinhead. Though one would never question the fecundity of his invention, Pinhead's work is not for your approval or your acclaim. Though his death must be keenly felt, as he would wish it, there are no limits to his influence, and we will, I have no doubt, see him in hell. Single tear <laughs> is rolling down my cheek right now. Oh, no tears, please. It's a waste of good suffering. Uh, it's fun times. I'm going to miss Pinhead. Yes, so will we all. But I'm sure Clive would agree the time has probably come. The time probably came at the end of Bloodline, but the mm. time has probably come. <laughs> so, on social media, I am at MechaAngela on Twitter. That's like and, Mecha Godzilla, just substitute Godzilla for Angela. Or Angela for Godzilla. Yes, I think <laughs> Rower. And also, I am doing lots of reviews, including of the entire Hellraiser franchise. Please enjoy my suffering on thelosthighway.com. And that's pretty much where I am on the internet. And that, as well as here with us. As well as here with you. Uh, you can, again, uh, follow me as well on Twitter at, at HIFFSD or that's short for Horrible Imaginings Film Festival San Diego, in case you didn't know. And uh, always on Facebook, wasting my time. Follow us again here at the Horrible Imaginings podcast. We have lots of great other things coming for you. And definitely read Angela's reviews at thelosthighway.com because they're a lot of fun to read. And you get to know which films have boobs. So, <laughs> so you can... Set that fast forward button working because for some of these <laughs> movies, you're going to need the fast forward button. <laughs> Absolutely. I betray my entire gender. <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> Perhaps you do. I'm okay with it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's for funsies, right? It is for fun. <laughs> okay, everybody. I think we, uh, this is our tribute to Hellraiser and Clive Barker episode in preparation for the upcoming Scarlet Gospels, May 19th. Goodbye, Angela. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me, Miguel. We'll talk See soon. Bye. Everybody else out there, stay scared. professional mic yo i should have been using this from the start i feel yep. bad does it have any kind of wind block on it it doesn't but i can, can you throw that. a sock on it yeah yes <laughs> absolutely i can put a sock on it sweet <laughs> <laughs>
That is exactly what I use. It's like, you know, illustrating how to put a condom on a banana. Do you have to, like, roll it down? A little bit, yeah. <laughs>